From Buffalo to Bayside and Elmira to Elmhurst, right here in the borough of Brooklyn, it's 5 p.m. in the five boroughs and across New York State, so it's time for Max and Murphy, your interview and call-in show on the policies, politics, and people of New York City and New York State. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Jarrett, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm good. We're 33 days from the election, Ben. We are. Uh, it's really remarkable how fast this is sneaking upon us. I think the primary was a little bit late. And so now the general election is coming fast uh, and we are within five weeks. So folks should really be getting ready to vote. If you're not registered to vote, very important deadline coming up. October 12th is the voter registration deadline. And so uh, everyone needs to be aware if they need to get registered, do it by October 12th. Now, that is also the deadline to change party registration for next year's primaries in New York's terrible uh, voter election laws. However, there aren't really that many elections happening next year, although there are a few. So it's not as big a deadline as it has been in the past. Do you know, Ben, speaking of next year's elections, one of the wrinkles of this year is is that should Letitia James win attorney general, there have to be a special election for public advocate. If you change your registration on October 12th, would that apply to that special election? I guess it wouldn't matter because it's a special election. This is... Who knows? You did not prepare me me for this question. Um, So I don't believe that it would matter because that is not going to be a party primary. uh, So that what we're really talking about in terms of those uh, registration changes is for if you – it's basically for if you're registered with one party and you want to be registered then with another or if you're unaffiliated and want to join a party in order to participate in a primary, that's the deadline. Um, so if we're talking about a special election for public advocate, which we may very well have if Tish James is successful for attorney general, that would be, I believe, a late February special election. And there are no party lines for the special election that would be followed up by a regular election in the fall. And that's where I don't have an answer for you today, but we'll get one. And <laughs> thankfully, we have a little All bit right. of time. And we also have an attorney general race. And speaking of the attorney general race, next week we'll be joined by Republican nominee Keith Wofford. So folks will get a chance to hear from him. Tish James, who is now the Democratic nominee, we had on our first episode of Maxim Murphy here on WBAI. We'll also be joined next week by Larry Sharp, the Libertarian candidate for governor. And this week we'll have two of the Comptroller candidates, the incumbent Democrat Tom DiNapoli and his Republican challenger Jonathan Trichter. Uh, But those are just a few of the political stories making headlines today. Obviously, a lot of the country is focused on Washington, where the FBI is expected to reveal or produce its final report, uh, a truncated final report on the uh, allegations against Judge Kavanaugh to the Senate this evening. Uh, Obviously, a lot of tension focused there on the story in the New York Times today, the exhaustive, incredible investigation of the financial machinations behind uh, Donald Trump's uh, financial empire and the very real question of whether laws are broken in uh, transferring that wealth from his father's real estate empire to him. And Ben, here in New York State, I think a lot of attention is focused tonight on the Working Families Party. Yeah, that's uh, deliberations are happening publicly, actually. They've had some private deliberations, but deliberations are happening publicly for the Working Families Party this evening, right after we get off the air here, actually around six o'clock, they'll be 
be meeting in downtown Manhattan. They're going to be deciding what to do with their ballot line. It looks very clearly that Cynthia Nixon and Jermani Williams would be moving off their gubernatorial lieutenant governor lines. And the big question seems to be, will they really go with Andrew Cuomo and Kathy Hochul after all the animosity that's been there over the last several months and years, really? Um, and is Cuomo ready to take that line? And indications are that they might just do it and unite for the general election. Um, interesting dynamics there, but uh, we shall see later on tonight how that goes. Another race that we've been following closely, you mentioned uh, Keith Wofford coming on our show next week, and he has been in the news this week uh, demanding a series of debates with Letitia James, his his main competitor for attorney general. And James has had her own retort uh, to him. Yeah, I think it was actually the other way around. She was calling for him to release his taxes, and he sort of came back with, we need to have five debates or something along those lines. So there's the usual election season um, sort of hijinks there, although both issues, as far as I'm concerned, uh, are important and should be addressed. Candidates for office, I think, should release their taxes and there should be multiple debates, certainly for some of these major positions or even minor positions. Certainly true, especially if you consider the fact that as as our show reflects, there are candidates on third and fourth and fifth party lines or, or ballot lines uh, who have interesting uh, things to add. And if you have more debates, it's easier to incorporate them in the process. Moving even closer to home, uh, news on the political front here in Brooklyn last night, Governor Cuomo endorsing Andrew Gunardis, who is uh, the Democrat nominee in the 22nd Senatorial District. That is the seat currently held by Republican Marty Golden, the only Republican senator in New York, in uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, one of the few, uh, two, I think, remaining uh, Republican senators in the city after many have fallen away. We can't so, forget Simka Felder, though, because he's in this weird, weird is, gray area. He is yes. an elect, elected Democrat, but uh, and obviously uh, uh, Andrew Lanza uh, out in Staten, uh, Staten Island as well. Um, but that is a race that is is potentially part of this statewide picture of turning the Senate blue, and uh, Gunardis seems fairly confident that he might be able to uh, to punch through. Yes, that's going to be a very interesting race to watch. Governor Cuomo has seem to really turn a corner here in terms of the focus he's going to put and the energy and the money and the resources he's going to put behind trying to flip the state Senate Democratic. No better indication of that than the fact that he was out there forcefully behind Andrew Gernardis in southern Brooklyn yesterday. He was out on Long Island the day before. Um, We just did a story on this at Gotham Gazette about Cuomo putting his money and his effort behind these candidates. And this is one of the biggest indications. Two years ago, Democrats didn't even run someone against Marty Golden when he was running for re-election, a Republican in Brooklyn. So we have more on that to discuss next week's show, actually, um, or two weeks from now, I'm sorry, we're going to focus on the races for the state Senate and the battle over control for the state Senate between Democrats and Republicans. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks um, after we have some great guests next week. But on this week's show, we, we have are- our... Go ahead. <laughs> Comptroller candidates, uh, Jonathan Trichter, the Republican uh, nominee, and Tom DiNapoli, the incumbent uh, Democrat. And so we are joined right now on the line by Jonathan Trichter, the Republican nominee for state comptroller. Mr. Trichter, welcome to WBAI. You're on with Jarrett Murphy and Ben Max. Good to talk with you. 
see Jared and Ben. I'm so sorry I'm not there in person. I'm close. <laughs> well, traffic in New York City. We're happy to chat with you over the phone or in the studio or wherever it might be. So it's good to have you join us, and we're uh, glad to have a chance to, to ask you some questions and hear about your campaign. You're obviously uh, running for controller, trying to unseat incumbent Democrat Tom DiNapoli in this year's race. Before we get into the dynamics of the race, Tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and your background and your qualifications for the role. Thank you. Sure. So I'm a private sector guy. I have a deep background in public finance and public pension work. I covered the controller's office as an investment banker for J.P. Morgan, where I first came to realize the potential power of the office to do so much good in terms of fixing many of the vexing fiscal problems that policy analysts and good government groups uh, wring their hands over. The controller is an underutilized office. I was there when Hevesy, the former controller, was hauled off to prison due to corruption. And of course, when the current controller was afterwards handpicked by Shelley Silver, um, despite the objections of every editorial board in the state, because he was totally and thoroughly unqualified. And then I watched the office kind of get mismanaged and not used to its full potential uh, to fix some of the fiscal problems that we all worry about and try to figure out how to how to work out and how to get around. The controller's office can address many of those head-on. So I decided to run for uh, the office because the upside is so huge in terms of what it could do unilaterally in New York State that I thought it was worth uh, spending seven, eight months of my life full-time going for it. Talk more about the fiscal problems that you see and how the comptroller's office could be a tool to fix them. Sure. So start with Let's just look at it through the prism of the office itself, right? It's a tremendously powerful controller's office, by far the most powerful controller in the country um, uh, by, by any measure, which means if I won, I could be the most famous controller in America, which, by the way, is the uh, height of fame that I aspire to be. I don't aspire to be any better <laughs> Aim high. than the Aim most high. famous controller in America. So the, the office is the sole fiduciary of a $200 billion pension fund, and that's the market power of a Saudi prince. And as I like to joke to my friends, if I win this office, despite being able to invest $200 billion, I expect them all to treat me just as they would any other world leader. Uh, and that's both funny and true, because with the market power and the ability to set practices and standards at a large pension fund, you could help the rest of the country start to address the larger public pension problem in America, which we often hear about through Puerto Rico, Detroit, Illinois, New Jersey. Uh, New York State is relatively well-funded compared to some of the most distressed public pension funds around the country, but only because we are much more aggressive in making up for our shortfalls and unfunded liabilities and investment shortcomings by the current controller via taxes that ultimately squeeze municipalities, cities and states, and cause many of the localities in New York to struggle in terms of balancing their own budgets. And if you were uh, in charge of the pension fund and knew what you were doing, a professional, you could actually restructure it to ease some of those fiscal stresses, uh, help earn more on the invested assets of the $200 billion pension fund, reduce fees that the current controller is paying to hedge fund managers and the like. The current controller uh, has paid over the course of his tenure in office $6 billion to hedge fund managers and the like. And if that sounds like a lot, it's only because it is. Those hedge fund managers and alternative fund managers have way underperformed the market overall. They save $6 billion in fees and earn significantly more value for New York State taxpayers and retirees if he had passively invested the public pensions assets in the same kind of 
indexes that you probably invest yourself uh, in your own 401k. Uh, and that's the kind of prudent management and investment approach that a sole trustee could apply to earn a better return for retirees and taxpayers. And that's only one power of the office. Uh, another huge power of the office is the ability to certify the state budget or not each and every year. And so we all worry about the dysfunctional budget process in Albany, and few fail to realize that by uh, negative leverage through the certification process, the controller could insert himself into the three men in the room process and make it, a, a, in my case, a fourth man. And, and have the fourth man, instead of bargaining on behalf of the legislature or the state senate or the governor and his own political ambitions, bargain on behalf of ordinary New Yorkers, which is what the controller is supposed to do with the chief fiscal officer. So, so let me, let me let jump me in there. But before you jump in, sure. let me name one more and you can come back to it uh, because it's really cut and dry and unilateral and it's very short and punchy. Uh, as controller, I could end backdoor borrowing, which is the much decried practice that is largely responsible for our crushing debt burden in New York State. I could end backdoor borrowing on day one by just not signing off on backdoor borrowing deals. The current controller released a debt report in 2017, which blamed backdoor borrowing uh, for a crushing debt load. But what he failed to report or recognize was that he himself signed off on all of the backdoor borrowing deals, including $32 billion since he's been in office in backdoor debt. And I would refuse to sign off on that debt and the practice on day one. The controller thinks we need a constitutional amendment to end the practice. And I'm telling you, I could do it unilaterally. Right. I've heard, uh, I've heard you both talk about that before. I think uh, actually on Susan Arbetter's show, the Capitol Press Room. And I think that's something we might need to get some some lawyers who have less of a stake in this race to, to weigh in on. So, But it is an interesting... I'm sorry. You don't have to... You don't actually have to... Let me, when I was an investment banker at J.P. Morgan in public finance in 2005, there was a particularly, particularly hairy bond deal. It was a synthetic swap for funding for the Thruway Authority. At the time, Alan Hevesy was fighting with Pataki over something relatively unrelated to the deal itself. But the Comptroller's Office refused to sign off on the bond deal. And I know my friends on the deal knew that it wouldn't close without the controller's signature. So it's not a, a legal matter that needs to be litigated, whereas budget certification might legitimately need to be litigated. And that's okay, I'd lawyer up, I'd suit up, and I'd fight it. I'd test uh, my power to refuse to certify the budget. But on backdoor uh, borrowing, that's not uh, a matter that needs to be litigated. That's I was, I was, I was less referring done. to litigating and more weighing in on exactly where the power lands and whether it needs uh, you know, the legislation that, that Comptroller Napoli thinks. But we can revisit that. No, it doesn't. I wanted to jump in. I wanted to jump in on the on the issue of um, it's in the it's in the bond covenants and the indentures for the Thruway Authority, the ESD ESD or ESDC and DASNY all need the controller's approval to uh, issue any backdoor negotiated debt deals. So it, you don't need legislation. It's actually in the bond covenants. They can't issue debt without it. So on the issue you raised about jumping into the backroom negotiations about the budget, you would jump in to just insert yourself into those negotiations, or would you actually change something more about the process? You know, the governor often signs the messages of necessity to let these budget deals and legislative deals that happen behind closed doors in the middle of the night be rushed through the legislature without real public review. Is there something you would insist on more than just inserting yourself into that backroom deal? question, but and it depends, I guess, on the situation, right? Every budget is sui generis, but there are some patterns in the budgeting process which are uh, dysfunctional and problematic that I would aim to curb. And so the criteria I would use would be, uh, in terms of whether I would um, use the threat of uh, holding, withholding certification, would be whether or not the budget was structurally balanced according to gap accounting principles, 
whether it was free or the kind of one-shot fiscal gimmicks that mean that it's that means the budget isn't structurally balanced, potentially whether or not it adheres to the policy goal of staying in with 2% budget cap growth, uh, and also whether it was free of the kind of fiscal or boondoggles, the economic development boondoggles, which have done very little to create jobs, but uh, as we know, have done uh, much to help put high-level officials of the governor's office into prison. Uh, and so it's a combination, I think, of just how ugly the budget would be that particular year in terms of where I'd want to assert myself and how I'd want to exert the leverage or how do you want to use the leverage of the off certification to basically fight for a structurally balanced fair budget that's good for ordinary New Yorkers and that passes the smell test. But I do have the leverage to do that. Now, that would be lit- could be litigated, um, but that's okay. Uh, and I think just the threat of, 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 these cert- of not certifying the budget would cause uh, and, and yield a better negotiating process if I were genuinely negotiating on behalf of what's uh, uh, structurally sound for the state. You're listening to Max and Murphy on 99.5 WBAI. Uh, if you want to pledge to support the station, the number is 516-620-3602. If you want to call in with a question for our guest, Republican Comptroller Candidate Jonathan Trichter, that number is 347-335-0818. Uh, Mr. Trichter, you talked before about the power that the Comptroller has over the very large $200-plus billion pension fund. And one of the criticisms that's been leveled against the incumbent is that he has not used that power to divest from certain companies or industries that are seen as posing a public interest problem for the state. Uh, given you know your uh, attention to the fiduciary duty of, of monitoring the pension, what do you think about divestment? Is a tool? Is it one that you would ever use? What would, what would your approach be to that and to shareholder activism as the trustee, sole trustee of the pension funds? question. And like many of the issues connected to this topic, it's rather complex. And I don't think um, that the premise of the question gets to the core of the issues that relates to the incumbent. Uh, to be clear, the incumbent has not divested from, let's say, carbon, which is something that he talks a lot about and has done a lot about. Um, but what's at issue is a, a hypocrisy in the current investment approach that the controller applies to his carbon holdings. Specifically, he has paid Goldman Sachs an undisclosed sum to create a bespoke carbon index, which is supposed to mirror the broader markets, um, but invest in companies that yield or have a low carbon footprint. And he's pledged to put $4 billion into the Goldman index created specifically for him. He's refused to disclose what Goldman has charged him for that index, but presumably Goldman is uh, not working for free. And he uses that PR stunt, that cover of the low carbon index, to project himself as some kind of environmental sustainability leader. He's gone to conferences all over the world talk about his environmental sustainability investment approach in Bonn and Paris, because he's fancy. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as I think the premise of your, conversa- of your question denotes, he continues to hold Exxon, for instance, which remains among the top 10 equity holdings in the fund, as well as 50 other high-carbon emitters, um, the others of which he refuses to disclose. And so the hypocrisy is that he's paying Goldman with taxpayer money for the privilege of having this public relations veneer to be some kind of environmental steward and to hoodwink environmental activists who believe in him and believe that he's actually doing something positive, whereas at the same time, on the other hand, he's invested in oil and gas companies and carbon emitters up the wazoo. So that's one of the problems uh, that occurs when you try to play politics with the investment approach of the fund. I would, as sole trustee, invest the funds to maximize returns for individual retirees, and if they want to 
then donate their annuities to Sierra Club, then I'd like to give them the financial freedom to do that. But I'd run a politically neutral pension fund, um, and I would invest the equity portion of the fund in passive indices that mirror the S&P 500, and I would not pick winners and losers, nor would I pick winning and losing industries. So in that respect, um, the argument that um, being more of a activist investor, looking at trends, looking at um, issues like climate change um, is not something that would factor into your decision making or you're saying you would look at those trends and make decisions based on them, but you're not going to do it for what you deem as more political benefits. I would literally invest in an S in, the, in the equity portfolio in an array of diversified indices that mirror the broader markets, and that means that I would not pretend that a certain industry uh, is doomed because uh, uh, certain progressives or activists believe or want to believe that it's doomed. Uh, I'm not that smart of an investor, although I'm much better than Tom DiNapoli. And at the same time, I know that when you start activist investing and basically holding the joystick yourself, you wind up paying fund managers like hedge funds and private equity funds, a huge amount of fees that drag on returns. And therefore, you are um, breaking your fiduciary responsibility to retirees by not maximizing returns. So you want the fund so, to mirror the, the, the market. Yeah, exactly. And this is, a, this is of a piece with Warren Buffett's approach and his recommendations to uh, other investors. As, as he actually made a much publicized bet over the past 10 years, which happened to coincide with DiNapoli's 10-year tenure at the uh, controller's office from 07 or fiscal year 08, I guess, to fiscal year 2017, where he put uh, money into uh, the S&P 500, a passive index, as well as a basket of hedge funds. And he bet a million dollars that the S&P 500, the passive investment in the industry, would uh, outperform hedge funds over the long term. And he won the bet, and he donated a million dollars to uh, charity. Uh, but the larger point, which he talks about in his shareholder letters, which are often reported on, is that the uh, investor, especially a $200 billion fund, when you, when you have that much money, you pretty much are the market. You're much better off taking into account the fee structure of activist investing and hedge funds and private equity funds, avoiding those fees, and investing in a virtually cost-free index that mirrors the broader market, as you say. The backdoor debt issue that you raised in, is an interesting one, and, and I wonder, you know, the the debt that the state has is obviously uh, could be troubling. Uh, the process you've talked about is problematic too, but but that debt pays for things, and I wonder if you were to refuse to sign off on the backdoor debt, what would the consequences of that be in terms of uh, public uh, investment not occurring, things not being built, maintenance not occurring, and some of the authorities that debt uh, applies to you? What would be the the flip side of your not signing off on it? Yeah, so it's a good question. So it's a process issue, right? Because as you point out, there is good debt. You could uh, spend uh, $100 million on a bridge that's needed. The bridge could collect revenues over its lifespan, pay back bondholders, and the state is basically held harmless. And you've got a, an asset for the life of the bridge that's funded by usage. And that kind of debt is good debt, and it should be issued. It helps uh, states, cities expand, uh, build their economic base, etc. And it's the way you pay for capital projects as well as infrastructure repairs in a, in a potentially fiscally prudent way. The problem with factor debt is there's no public scrutiny. If you issue that debt via public authorities, there's very little public input, and you get what you get is when you get professional politicians and very little public scrutiny, you get these politicians who become addicted to debt 
debt. They start doing pet projects, economic development projects, which don't pan out, uh, and a lot of bad debt. And that's why we've got a crushing debt burden and why there's consensus on eliminating the process that's opaque to issue that debt. So by eliminating that process, I bring uh, debt issuances out into the open. And if they could withstand public scrutiny because they're good debt deals, then they would likely go forward. They'd win voter support. They'd win widespread public support. They'd win the support of folks who pay attention to these issues like you uh, and ultimately pass muster. It's the process that's opaque and that goes through the back door and that nobody looks at. That's when you have problems in bad debt. So that's the process I would really aim at eliminating and uh, push debt out of the open, let a little sunshine in, let the debt issuance stand on their own merits. So the even uh, incumbent controller Tom DiNapoli has said uh, as recently as a couple months ago when I last spoke with him that the state has too much debt and not enough savings relative to what it's putting out. Um, it's been, as you indicated, through some of the discussion of even just how the market has performed, we know the last uh, 10 years has really been a strong period of growth overall. And of course, there's pockets of the state doing uh, not as well as others. And New York City has been a lot stronger than others places. But generally speaking, the state financial picture has been fairly good over the last eight to 10 years, yet the state has too much debt, not enough savings. If you're coming into office as controller, what are your recommendations about what to do about those those things? Yeah. yeah let me start with the, the lead up to your the punchline question that you asked, right? I mean, I just because the point deserves to be reiterated. It's a terrific point. We are in the long, now the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, and yet the state suffers from more per capita debt than median in the country, twice as much, according to the controller himself. And the controller also boasts that the pension fund, our own public pension fund, is well-funded, either between 95 and 98 percent funded, depending on which metrics he uses. And yet we have too much debt. And the truth is that even at 95, 98 percent funded level, the public pension fund uh, max a larger public pension debt component that the controller has covered up. So there's really at least $11 billion, but much more likely $35 billion in addition, additional public pension debt that we can talk about that the controller is covering up that's parked off the balance sheet of the state, much like Enron parked a lot of its debt off its own balance sheet using special purpose vehicles, which was, of course, uh, an investment practice, or I should say an accounting practice that didn't end well. And so all of this is going on when things are pretty good nationally, and yet the state has pockets that are lagging, and overall we've got some real fiscal uh, challenges ahead. Uh, answer is you need good leadership, people who understand these issues and can address them in earnest, and professional, the kinds of people who have the professional qualifications and the to be an old office like the chief fiscal officer of New York State. Uh, the first thing I would do is be honest about the pension debt itself, which is something the controller doesn't even really account for. The numbers that I threw out about pension debt are hidden in disclosures in the state CAFR, which nobody reads and is very hard to get through. And if you can be honest about it, you could definitely share the pain, share sacrifice, and, and fund those debts. And then on the on the bond issuance side, you know, the fact that we've got $63.7 billion in outstanding bonds or in a per capita, it's about 3100 per capita. Um, you've got to basically curtail our debt and stop potentially with mega projects, including some of the favorite political projects of the governor, like Eastside Access, uh, Long Island Railroad Expansion, um, and Second Avenue Subway, in order to focus on uh, the maintenance and state of good repair projects that we need just to maintain the current infrastructure until we potentially pay down our debt load over time and can invest once again in expansionary projects. 
So we have just a couple minutes left with Jonathan Trichter, Republican running for state comptroller. Uh, I'm curious your reaction to an idea that has come out in the past uh, few months and was reiterated today by the Green Party, which is that New York State should look into creating a public bank, a place where when the state has deposits, it needs to stash somewhere rather than putting it in a private bank. It's a public bank, and, and that bank can then be used to make uh, infrastructure loans and and maybe you know deal with its debt in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, is that an idea you've uh, encountered and thought about it all? Do you think it has any merit? Oh, yeah, it's a great idea. Make Let's make a bank and let's put politicians in charge of it, in charge of it in New York State. Only the Green Party. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what, the, I don't know why they think it would be a good idea to, to basically cut out another pile of, uh, of cash that politicians could disperse. Um, that would, a board that would be represented that's filled by politicians who would have the incentives to use the cash to fund pet projects in their own districts. I mean, that, the state budget has too much of that. We don't need an off, another off balance sheet entity. It's basically, they're, they're advocating for effectively another public authority with uh, run by politicians uh, as a cash kitty for potential pet projects of politicians. So um, I started off the answer by being a little sarcastic, but uh, I, uh, what I mean to say is no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing that I would expect from the Green Party, but I would not pay my health. So last question for you, Jonathan Trichter, and hopefully maybe we'll get a chance to chat with you again before Election Day. But um, you switched your party from Democrat to Republican to run in this race, um, you you know, you've you've worked on you worked on Harry Wilson's Republican campaign for controller in 2010. Uh, the first poll that came out with the race shows you, you know, significantly behind. What's your path to victory here? I mean, how do you how do you get this done in our in our last minute here? Um, how do you forecast sort of the politics side of this race? So at the risk of bearing the lead, first, let me say thank you for having me. I'd love to come on again. Um, and then the, the truth is, is that I've talked a little bit to you about how the controller has used the offices or failed to use the office to correct some of the fiscal problems in New York. What he's really done with the office is protected the status quo. And fiscally, again, I've made the point fiscally how he's done that. But he's also done it culturally. And here's how I want to win the race. The last five weeks of this campaign, I'm going to talk about an incident which my poll and my own internal polling shows is almost disqualifying for the controller among voters. Recall that he also used the powers of the office to negotiate a secret settlement with his very close friend and political ally, Vito Lopez, who sexually harassed two female uh, staff that was working for Vito at the time. He used taxpayer money to cut the uh, hush money payment to those victims over the objections of the victims who didn't want to uh, have the gag order included in the settlement. And that allowed Vito to continue hiring young women and harass them with impunity. And this all came out. It was all public in 2013. It was a J-Cope investigation, which implicated the controller's office and its culpability. And this controller has never apologized for that. And this was all pretty bad when it came out in 2013. But as my own internal polling showed, and as we all know, the world changed in November of 2017. And it changed for the better in this regard. And you really can't get away with that anymore. Napoli is not himself a sexual predator, but he covered up for one. And you just can't do that. We're going to have to leave it there, but it sounds like you were finishing that thought. Jonathan Trichter, candidate for state controller. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll see you on the campaign trail. Hey, thanks for having me. Have a great night. You too.